When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us! But there was no voice. And no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself. Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be wakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. 
And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord... He is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. The word of the Lord. We continue our series on the life of Elijah, on the strange life of Elijah, as I think of it. He lived in a pluralistic and idolatrous culture, much like our culture today. He was a prophet sent to proclaim a very simple message, a message that matters to us today as well. His message was, only the Lord is God, and He, only He deserves our full devotion and obedience. So last week we saw the Lord show his dominance over Baal, the Canaanite god of fertility, God responsible for the rains that bring the harvest. The Lord sent a drought to show who really is in charge of the weather. And after announcing a devastating news to Ahab, a particularly wicked king of Israel, uh, Elijah was hidden away for over three years. The Lord took him and kept him first by the brook Cherith and provided for him there miraculously. Then he sent him to a widow's house in Zarephath, which is Baal's territory, to provide for him there. And now Elijah reappears again over three years later. Now remember, this has been drought through the land for three years. So people are hurting. 
the king is being criticized. Baal is not working the way people expect him to. And so Elijah now shows up, and there's a confrontation between Elijah and the priests of Baal, which is our focus today. So I'd like us to consider three things here as we work through this wonderful passage of Scripture. First, the context, and I think there's a particular lesson for us there on how to respond uh, to our culture today. Secondly, the contest, we see Elijah finally confronting the priests of Baal. And then thirdly, the contrast between idolatry and true worship, which will take us to the cross of Jesus Christ. Feels good to alliterate, doesn't it? Felt really good about this outline. Let's look at the, you don't care, but let's look at the context. Now, when I read this story, and I don't know if it's unusual or if you're thinking the same things, but when I read this, my big question is, should I be like Elijah? I mean, am I, am I just too much of a coward to do what he did? Do I not have enough faith to say, Lord, bring down fire from heaven? I mean, when I read this, I think for many of us, the natural inclination is to, to identify with Elijah and say, well, should I be a prophet like him? Is that what faithfulness really looked like? I mean, is that, is that what a Christian should be today? Is, is, is Elijah this powerful and compromising prophet that brings down destruction on the priests of Baal? Well, actually, as we think about this passage, this is not the only example of faithfulness. It is one, and we'll be dealing mostly with Elijah's faithfulness, but there are two examples of faithfulness in our text. Now, we didn't read much of the first part of it, but there's, there's Obadiah that's, that's, that's part of, um, part of this, this story. And Obadiah was a Christian. I mean, he was a believer in Ahab's court. So if you look at verse 3, for example, it tells us that Obadiah feared the Lord. And that's, that means he was a true Christian. He was a true believer. He was a, a follower of the Lord. He remained faithful. Later, he says that from his childhood, from his youth, he He's feared the Lord. So th this is a believer just like Elijah. Scripture, scripture doesn't condemn or criticize anything that Obadiah has done in our text. But his approach to faithfulness was very different. Obadiah was quiet in his faithfulness. We know that he was in the court of Ahab. means he was involved and very much involved directly in the, the wicked culture. In some ways, he was there, he was present as a believer, not compromising his faith, but, but not separating. And when Jezebel cut off all, or she tried to cut off all the prophets of the Lord, he actually hid 100 prophets, 50 in each cave, and provided for them over, uh, I'm assuming, years here. So Obadiah and Elijah are side by side in the same chapter. Why? I think the Lord is deliberately showing us that faithfulness can be different. Faithfulness can be quiet or confrontational. It could be behind the scenes or it could be very public. It could be constructive or it could be disruptive. Now, Scripture affirms in one chapter, because I've always wondered, why is Obadiah here? 
There's a story about Elijah and this great victory over the prophets of Baal. And yet, you know, the first portion of the chapter is about Obadiah. But I think that's because both models of faithfulness are needed. Now, if you read Scripture, yeah, maybe we typically think of John the Baptist and Elijah and Jeremiah and Jonah, those who, who just proclaimed God's Word and brought, often brought judgment on their culture, on, on, on the idolatrous people. But for every John the Baptist, for every Jeremiah, for every Jonah, there's Joseph, right? Serving in the Egyptian court. There is Naaman, remember the general that was healed and remained in the service of a pagan king. And of course, there's Daniel, maybe one of the greatest examples. Daniel, faithful, and yet serving very much in a pagan environment. Each form of faithfulness comes with its own temptations. Obadiah's, the quietly faithful present people, are tempted to assimilate and compromise. So if you're in that mode, if you're being faithful in that mode, your temptation is to, to maybe be too quiet and maybe to, to not speak up, speak up when you're supposed to, and maybe to compromise what you would normally do for the Lord for the sake of fearing other people or trying to please other people. There is a temptation to assimilate, to be just like anybody else, which mainly pagans around. But Elijah's too are prone to temptations. They're prone to arrogance. Elijah is prone to insecurity. We'll be reading chapter 19 next week and just his tremendous inner turmoil that, that he finds himself in. He, he is prone to catastrophic thinking. It has to be, everything has to be done right now, and if it's not done, everything just disappears and, and disintegrates. And I think we need both in the body of Christ, in the Christian faithfulness in a pagan culture, so that neither temptation wins. Now here's an example. D.A. Carson uses this example. He says during World War II, there were two, two ways to oppose the Nazis. On the one hand, there was Dutch resistance, right? People hiding Jews in their homes, in the basements, in their attics, very quietly, you know, often through deception, often in secret trying to stay undetected under the radar. And then there were soldiers storming the beaches of Normandy and attacking the Nazi army head on. Is one better than the other? Well, both were needed. Both are appropriate. Both came out of specific circumstances and both were needed to win the war. And here's the question. How do you know what kind of faithfulness the Lord asks of you? Because it's easy to, to, to classify it based on personality, right? I'm, I'm a confrontational person, you know. So the Lord must call me to a confrontational kind of faithfulness. Well, not necessarily. And actually, probably not, I would say. Because what you see in Scripture is you see the, the people who are chosen for kind of confrontational ministry are often very, very reluctant to step into that arena, I mean, think just in your head. Think about all the characters of the Bible that had these, these tremendous showdowns, right, with kings and other prophets and were placed in a situation where they had to be very bold. Most of them are not bold by nature. 
They were made bold by God. The Spirit had to work with their flesh. And again, some of us, by personality, we're just kind of quieter. We, we like to be behind the scenes. We just like to not cause trouble in general, you know, but just kind of help people. And, and if that's your personality, does that mean that the Lord is calling you to that kind of faithfulness? Not necessarily. Because a lot of those people in Scripture, think about the same characters, right? A lot of those people were called to confrontational ministry. So it, it's easy when when your personality matches that to look down on the other people. It's easy to look at Obadiah and say, well, they're just cowards, right? It's easy to look at Elijah and say, they're just jerks. <laughs> and it's easy to do that. But I think Scripture calls us, by placing Obadiah and Elijah in the same chapter, I think Scripture calls us to be humble and to accept our particular kind of faithfulness and be faithful in it. I am not trying to steer you one way or the other. I think we need both. But as you are faithful in that particular kind of faithfulness, be careful not to judge and put down the other side. Because both Obadiah and Elijah were significant in this battle for the heart of Israel under King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Okay, so how do you know? How do you know what kind of faithfulness the Lord asks of you? If it's not your personality, if it's not necessarily your experience, how do you know? Well, the answer is in our text. Look at verse 36. Elijah prays. There's, that's the great prayer, right, that, that precedes fire coming down from heaven. Elijah prays, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Elijah's doing what the Lord told him to do. I mean, even in the beginning of our chapter, in, in, in verse 1, the story begins, after many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. The reason Elijah is confronting Ahab is because he was sent by God to do that. The Lord promised him that through that confrontation, drought will be over and rain will come. Now, I want to encourage you to consider that the Lord may be calling you to a confrontational prophetic ministry at this time. He may be calling you. It's got to be some of us in this church, right? There's got to be some quiet, faithful people. Yes, we need that. We need Obadiahs, but we need Elijahs too. And I wonder if we are listening, if we are hearing him when he calls us to do that, because it's scary for many of us. Do you know what the Lord wants you to do? Are you listening to his voice? Now, Elijah was led into the wilderness by the brook Cherith and, and then staying with the widow of Zarephath to prepare the Lord was preparing him for this confrontation with Ahab. It didn't happen quickly. It wasn't like, I'm going to go and defeat Ahab and all his priests. No, no. The Lord took time to work in him, to prepare him. Is it possible that the Lord is doing something like that with you? Or has he prepared you already and he's ready to send you out? 
Elijah learned to listen and to obey. He learned to, to discern God's word, to know God's voice during those three years at the brook Cherith and at the widow's house. And if you take anything away from this sermon, and maybe you don't know which type of faithfulness is calling you to do, but, but the main thing you need to remember is that we live by His Word. That whatever your life is, wherever He's calling you to do it, all of that is dependent on what God says, what God commands. J.I. Packer said, True Christians are people who acknowledge and live under the Word of God. What does it mean to be a Christian, to be a disciple? It means to listen to Him and follow Him. It has to mean that. That's, that's the most basic definition of Christianity. Is I listen to Christ and I follow Him. And whatever He calls me to do, then I, I do it. Because I live under the Word of God. Does this describe you? Do you, do I live under the Word of God? Whether it means quiet faithfulness or confrontational faithfulness. That's the context. What about the contest? I mean, it's a great, it's a great story, isn't it? Elijah tells Ahab, this wicked king, who thinks his only problem is Elijah, right? He sees Elijah and says, you troubler of Israel. He's basically saying, you are causing all this trouble. You are causing the drought. If you just let me be, we'd be fine. We'd be fine. Of course, Elijah says, no, no. I'm not the trouble of it, so you are. With all your idolatry, this is why all these bad things are happening. And so it sets up a confrontation. But of course, it's not really a confrontation between Elijah and Ahab, right? It's a confrontation about the Lord and all the idols that Israel is worshiping. So Elijah says to Ahab, gather 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah at Mount Carmel. Again, this is, this, is, this is Baal's territory. Elijah challenges the people in verse 21. And this is the point of this contest. He addresses the people, the observers, says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. Follow Him, obey Him, honor Him, listen to Him. But if Baal... Well, well, if he's real, then follow him. Why are you trying to do both? Why are you trying to, to live in this syncretistic, pluralistic way where any God is legitimate? And maybe we pray to this God for rain, but we'll pray to that God for other things. He's saying you have to choose. Make up your mind. But the people say nothing. They stay on the fence. There's no evidence right now to choose so Elijah then tells the prophets of Baal to prepare a sacrifice, place it on the altar. Now Elijah does the same with his sacrifice. He tells the priests, you call on Baal, I'll call on the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. The God who sends fire from heaven and burns up the sacrifice, accepts the sacrifice from his worshipers, then he is God and we will all worship him. This is pretty simple, right? I mean, you can't get much clearer than that, right? Because both gods, both the Lord and Baal, were thought to be in control of heaven and rain and thunder and lightning and those kinds of things. So if Baal is real, well, this should be easy for him. If the Lord is real, it should be no problem for him either. Elijah is the only prophet of the Lord participating in this contest. He's the only person. 
on the Lord's side. Baal has 450 prophets, 400 prophets of Asherah on the bench. And so everything is, seems to be set up to the advantage of Baal. It's his territory. It's on a mountaintop, which is, would be easier to send a lightning to a mountain. Elijah makes his altar extra wet, hard to, to set it on fire. Elijah is an obvious underdog, but this is how God prefers to work, doesn't he? He shows his strength in our weakness. It's an encouragement for us today. You may be feeling weak today, but don't be discouraged because this is exactly when God works. This is exactly how he prefers to work. The sacrifice that you've offered may be wet, right? But the Lord will bring fire if it pleases him because he works according to his own purposes and his own power. All day the priests of Baal call on their God to answer them. They dance around the altar. They pray very loudly. I'm assuming there's choreographed dancing and movement, right? I mean, they're, they're professionals. They've put everything on the line. We don't know. I think many of them are probably sincere. Maybe some of them aren't, but they've been doing that for a long time. And so they're doing their thing, and they've been cutting themselves to get Baal's attention, bleeding for him, trying to get him to engage with them. I'm assuming these are all kind of normal things that Baal worshipers did. Elijah mocks them, tells them to get louder. Maybe their God is away, he says, on a journey. Or maybe he's asleep, or maybe he's in the bathroom. Maybe you need to do something, to, something else to get his attention. Wake him up. He's not paying attention to you. Wake him up. Get louder. But eventually the priests of Baal have exhausted themselves. And verse 29 sums it up. It says, there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. We see the emptiness, the vanity of idolatry here. All that they've done, all the effort, right? All the sacrifice, all the time, and yet no one answered. Elijah then prays a very simple prayer. Now the priests of Baal are at it all day, right? And Elijah prays, you know, maybe 30 seconds, maybe a minute. Verses 36 through 37. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Make sure this is the God he's addressing. The covenant God. The God who's been with his people. The God who's provided for them and protected them and rescued them. This is the God who brought them out of Egypt. This is the God who promises to bless his people. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. This is his goal, Elijah's goal, to make known that he is God in Israel and that Elijah is his servant and that he's done everything at his word. Answer me, Elijah prays, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And the Lord answers. The Lord answers Elijah's prayer because it is according to his word. It is according to his promise. He had already told Elijah this is what he's going to do. Elijah is simply taking the Lord at his word. And the Lord sends fire from heaven 
Not only is the sacrifice consumed, but the whole stone altar is burnt up. The people seeing that, and I'm sure all of us would have done the same, they fall down in worship. They proclaim that the Lord, the Lord, He is God. Away with the bales, the Lord is God. Look, He's shown Himself by this miraculous intervention. Just as Elijah told us, we're not going to limp around anymore between two options. We're going to worship Him. And then the priests of Baal are captured and slaughtered by the drying brook Kishon. And then the Lord sends rain. The drought is over. The Lord blesses His people. People who just turn back to Him, He blesses His people with abundant rain, promising harvest and prosperity. Now, the Lord clearly wins, right? There's no, no ambiguity here. Everyone can see it. The priests of Baal are soundly defeated and punished. The people repent. The drought is over. I mean, I mean what, else, what else can you want? This is very dramatic. And yet it's very rare, Right? Even in Scripture, I mean, that, that doesn't happen very often. It happens very seldom. I mean, you can think about Moses maybe confronting the magicians of Egypt, right? A couple other cases like that. But it's very rare that there's a dramatic confrontation. And if we only see it as a dramatic, rare, dramatic confrontation, I think we will lose a lot of what we can learn from this passage. Because such a public confrontation between the Lord and specific idols, reveals an ongoing contest in our own lives, and it assures us of its outcome. Now, this is, this is dramatic, right? And this happened. Otherwise, you know, when you write stuff like that down, there's plenty of people, if they know it didn't happen, they will tell you it didn't happen, right? The fact that there's so many people who were present, and it's recorded in the history of the Bible, tells us that that really happened. But it doesn't happen often. And yet the story teaches us about the ongoing contest in our own lives, and it tells us what the outcome will be. We all live in tension between the Lord and various idols. Now, Baal, when you read Scripture, sometimes you think Baal is just this one deity. Well, often Baal just refers to one of the deities. This is a particular rain god, storm god here that they're worshiping that is referred to as Baal, but there are many Baals. In fact, sometimes the scripture talks about Israel worshiping Baals or the Baals because there are many of them. And so there are many idols demanding our worship today too. And we too dance and rave and cut ourselves hoping they answer. Now, idol is anything or anyone, good or bad, that is placed in position of ultimate significance. That's what an idol is. It's anything or anyone put in position of ultimate significance in your life. That could be family. Certainly, it could be country. It can be your children or your boyfriend or your boss. It can be comfort or pleasure. It can be food or alcohol or drugs. It could be education or career sexual identity, political affiliation. It can be reputation or approval of others. It could be your house or your car. It could be money or power. Anything that you look to for ultimate meaning, ultimate joy, is your functional God. No matter what religion you say you are, 
no matter what you proclaim to be true, it's where you worship. It's who you worship. It's who or what you think will make you ultimately happy, will put you ultimately at peace, will fulfill you completely. That's your God. Often, we are not even aware of our specific idolatry. It's kind of in the background. But the contest is going on. Which God will answer and bless us? Will my hopes be justified? Will I be happy when I get what I'm after? What will happen if I don't? This kind of idolatry may feel harmless for long stretches of time, but it is ultimately destructive. Unless it is exposed, usually through a deep disappointment or an obvious failure or some other crisis in life, it will eventually destroy us completely. I'm hesitant to share this story because it's my story and it's deeply embarrassing. But last Christmas, I decided to, to clean out the ashes from our fireplace. And our fireplace, the ashes fall down, and in the basement, there's a little door, and you, get, you kind of scoop it out and when it fills up. And I, you know, I was getting ready for Christmas. My children are coming home. And, and so I went to do that. And we hadn't had a fire for maybe two days, I think, maybe a day, something like that. So I get in there, and I start scooping it out. Um, and I see there's little embers there. It's still, it's not totally gone out, of course. It's embarrassing because I'm foolish, you know. I'm, I'm a foolish man, and you need to know this about me. So, I, so I'm trying, you know, I'm kind of, you know, you know try, trying to, to put out the, the heat and the fire. And, of course, I'm gathering all these ashes. Guess into what? A paper bag. <laughs> it, it'll get worse by the time I'm done with this story. Because I'm thinking, I'm, I'm putting it out, it's just ashes, you know, no big deal. So I'm doing, so I filled up a little like Trader Joe's or Aldi bag, you know, big one. And so, so I took it outside and I'm thinking, well, there's no fire, so what should I do with it? Well, I'm going to put it in the trash bin, of course, you know, I'm going to put it in the plastic, right? <laughs> Garbage can that we all have. So I put it in, at this point I'm thinking I'm done. This one thing off my list for the day, fireplace is ready, my children are coming home, lots of wonderful hours of family time by the fireplace. Hours later, I'm at, at the sink doing something, I'm looking at, and there's literally a fire. <laughs> my, <laughs> it's literally a dumpster fire, you know. <laughs> and so, and it's melt, the thing is melting, it will melt if you, you know, if you heat it up enough. It's melting, and there are flames coming through the bin. So, of course, I go and, you know, I put it up like, it's crazy. And I'm thinking, I mean, how stupid. I mean, why, why was I not thinking? I mean, fire, right? Paper, plastic. I mean, what is missing from this equation that I didn't get it? <laughs> you know, and I'm trying to, you know, of course, you know, at this point, everybody's like, what's going on? You know, so now everybody knows, you know, <laughs> Papa's stupid, you know, Papa doesn't, <laughs> Papa doesn't think through stuff. Not the first time, but this is a pretty obvious example. So I put it out, you know, of course, you know, the bin is unusable at this point. So I called the, you know, the trash company. They're gracious, you know, 
I'm trying not to tell him too much about what happened. You know. It's like, I'm like, I need a replacement bin. You know, like, well, what happened? You know, like, well, you know, just, it melted. I'm like, it was an accident. I'm like, how do you explain that without acknowledging that, you know, that I did it? They're graciously provided a new bin. Big letters. No hot ashes. <laughs> I felt targeted. I don't know if that's like they have a room with replacement bins for people like me or if that's a new design, you know. So I'm very careful <laughs> with my fireplace. Why am I telling you this story besides so you can laugh at me, which is good for me and maybe good for you? It's because something that was just kind of in the background, you know, for a long time, there were embers in the basement, you know, then I put them in the bin and everything seemed to be fine until it's not, right? Until there's a dumpster fire. <laughs> I mean, what a, what a good example of the human condition, right? We start out, nice family evening by the fireplace, and you end up with a dumpster fire, right? This is what idolatry does to you. That's the trajectory. That, that, that actually what happens. You think it's fine. You think it's fine to sacrifice everything for your career. It is fine for a little bit until your spouse leaves you and your children hate you, right? And then you realize, that what have I done? How could I not see it then? You know, I can place all my hopes on this, on this, in this political movement, and it seems great, and there's a lot of excitement, and we're going we're gonna to win until you realize later, right, that your life has been destroyed by this one obsession that blinded you to everything else. Now, how could I not see it then? Well, because we're idolaters, and idolatry blinds us. It makes us not see what we're supposed to see, and eventually it destroys us. So when you think about your life, when I think about my life, do I even know my idols? Do you know what your idols are? Now I'm assuming we're a church. Of course, we're, we're Christian, right? We affirm that the Lord is God. We are here to confess it and to sing it and to proclaim it, yes. But I, are we limping? Are we wavering between multiple options? Are we hedging our bets and saying, if this, the Lord doesn't work out, maybe I got a couple bales I can bring in when I need to. So we have to take this seriously, and we have to see that even though it's not maybe as dramatic, maybe it's not as confrontational in your life, but the nature of the contest is the same. There are idols, and there's a real God. And both are vying for our worship. Both are vying for our obedience. And the question is, are you going to discern who the real God is and commit to Him and obey Him and love Him and serve Him? So let me briefly show you the difference between idolatry and true worship as we wrap up. Because this dramatic episode draws some clear distinctions. Let's look at the contrast. First, idols demand our performance in return for a blessing. Idols demand our performance in return for a blessing. The priests of Baal are dancing, they're raving, and the intensity of their worship rises as time goes on. I mean, this is really important that they feel like they have to do better for Baal to hear them. And Elijah mocks them precisely because of that. And he's saying, what kind of God do you have that he, he can't hear you? Is he a real God? Is he listening? Is he there? And they're thinking, yeah, but if we get louder, if we dance better, right? 
If we pray harder, then maybe he will respond. Now, this is a basic principle of all religions and all ideological systems. It's not even religious per se. That if we do better, if we obey, perform, work harder, do more, then our God will bless us. Is this how you live? Are you performing to be accepted, to be loved, to be happy? Maybe if I just do a little better, dance a little better, right? Cry a little louder. But notice what Elijah does, and here's the contrast between idolatry and true worship. He utters a simple prayer. There's no manipulation of God. There's no dancing. There's no raving. Just a request for God to do what he has already promised to do. There's such simplicity because he is actually dealing with a real God who speaks. And he's simply reminding God of his word. Elijah is responding to God and not making God respond to him. Elijah is the responder. God has already spoken. God has already promised. Elijah doesn't need to perform. He's simply responding. Now, secondly, idols demand our blood. Idols demand our blood, our sacrifice. The priests of Baal, in desperation, cut themselves and bleed to get Baal's attention. Idols promise to give That's the general promise of idolatry. If you do this, if you perform, there will be a blessing for you. There's happiness or contentment or prosperity. Idols promise to give, but end up taking everything. The longer we worship a false god, the more blood we spill. We must show how committed we really are to get the blessing. So what better than spill a little blood? show how how much we're really in. I'll work harder in my career. I'll put more hours in. I'll, I'll, I'll work weekends. I'll do things I'm not supposed to do because I'll be happy. I'll be fulfilled. We must bleed to get a blessing in idolatry. Now, there's specific... I mean, specific physical examples in our culture today of that exactly same thing, right? People go under the knife. They bleed so they can get the blessing from their idol. I used to use cosmetic surgery for that example, right? If I think my looks is what makes me accepted by people, makes me loved by others, then of course I'll adjust whatever I need to adjust. Well, now we can talk about gender reassignment surgery, right? People actually change their bodies and their children's bodies to worship the idol of what? Self-determination? Freedom? Many idols are lumped into that. But it's not, I mean, you read a passage like this and you say, well, Baal worshipers in Israel, you know, what does that have to do with me? Well, How similar is it that we do the same things? We cut ourselves to bleed, to show our idol that we are worthy of of their attention, that we deserve the blessing. We'll cut our bodies. I'll, I'll manipulate my conscience just to get the blessing. And again, look at Elijah. He's calm. Trust the Lord to answer by fire, not because Elijah's faithful, 
but because God is. You see the difference? He's not trying to prove his faithfulness. He's not trying to prove how much he's willing to sacrifice. He's simply expecting that God will remain faithful to his own word. And final distinction, idols fail us. At the end of the day of dancing and raving and bleeding, there is silence. The irony of idolatry is that at the end, there is no blessing. Idols don't deliver on their promises. The approval of others will only make you more insecure. The success of your career will only make you more anxious. If you trust in a politician to fix your country, you will be disappointed. If you are only as happy as your children are, you will find yourself profoundly distressed. It's just silence. Things that appear to be working for a time eventually are shown to be empty. There's a story told by friends of, of Michel Foucault, who was a, is a postmodern literary critic, very famous, lived a, an incredibly immoral sexual lifestyle, was dying of AIDS. Friends gathered around him, and by their own accounts, they asked him, can you give us some final words of wisdom? Can you sum up your life? Can you tell us something to, uh, to, to, to go on with here after you're gone? And he said, I always thought that at the end of life, there will be something to say, but all I have is silence. Life lived for idols does not result in anything fulfilling ultimately. What is the outcome of Baal worship here? Slaughter by the drying brook of Kishon. What is the outcome of the worship of the Lord here? Rain, abundant blessing. The contrast is, is so clear here. Idolatry leads to destruction. If you're going to oppose God all your life, you will eventually have to face him, and you're not going to win that contest. And so the priests of Baal learned that. Elijah said, the God who answers by fire, he is God. That's the test. Once you see it, once they saw it, once the people saw it, they stopped limping and they embraced the true God. Now, where, we, where can we see it? And maybe a question should be, why doesn't God do that right now? Why doesn't God show up and send fire on the altar and prove to everybody watching that he is God? I think the answer is that he did that already. And the reason he did that, and he did it in such a definitive way, that he doesn't need to do it over and over again. There was one final sacrifice. There was one definitive show of power and justice and grace. And all we need to do is look at the cross to be moved out of our idolatry and into true worship. You cannot worship idols as you're also looking at the cross. The cross frees us from idolatry. And the more we look at the cross to the degree that we are consumed by the fire of God's justice on the cross, the less we're going to be tempted to worship idols. There was a time many hundreds of years after Elijah where a crowd was gathered in Jerusalem and two options were given to them too. You remember, right? Pilate says, who, sh who shall I go, who shall I let go free? Is it Barabbas or is it Jesus? And the crowd cried out, crucify him. Choosing for Barabbas, a criminal, an insurrectionist to go free. 
and yet consigning the innocent man, the Son of God, to the cross. And so a sacrifice was brought. Jesus was put on the cross, and he was consumed by the fire of God's judgment. As you read through the Bible, you will find that the fire is a metaphor for God's holiness. It's a metaphor for his glory that comes, and it cannot be contested. And so all that holiness, all that justice, all that power of God was put on Christ, who was there in our place as a sacrifice for us. So the Lord on that day answered by fire once and for all. And when you think about idolatry and true worship, here on the cross, here in the empty tomb, we see the difference And the difference is that our Lord performed for us. He's not waiting for us to perform for him, to show him that we are faithful, that we can accomplish these these great things. Jesus accomplished everything for us. That's why this is the last sacrifice. This is the final. This is the only sacrifice that reconciles us to God. Our Lord bled for us. He's not expecting us to bleed for him to earn his grace, but Grace comes through his blood, that he was bleeding. He gave his life for us. And there's a great passage in Zephaniah 3 that talks about our Lord dancing over us, the Lord singing over us. He's not waiting for us to dance and impress him or to sing and impress him, but he so pleased with his son that he sings and dances over us. Our Lord himself became the sacrifice for the sins of our idolatry. And if that is true, if that's the definitive answer by fire, which is what I'm saying, this is the definitive answer by fire, then he must be God. That this Lord, he is God, and we must worship him. And if he is God, then follow him. Trust him, obey him. Align your life to him, whatever faithfulness may look like for you, whatever he calls you to do, but it has to be following him. Jesus Christ is Lord.